Chapter 8 of Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Brian Aidy. Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 8 The Eiderdown Hunter. Off at last. That evening I took a brief walk on the shore near Reykjavik after which I returned to an early sleep on my bed of coarse planks, where I slept the sleep of the just. When I awoke, I heard my uncle speaking loudly in the next room. I rose hastily and joined him. He was talking in Danish with a man of tall stature and of perfectly Herculean build. This man appeared to be possessed of very great strength. His eyes, which started rather prominently from a very large head, the face belonging to which was simple and naive, appeared very quick and intelligent. Very long hair, which even in England would have been accounted exceedingly red, fell over his athletic shoulders. This native of Iceland was active and supple in appearance, though he scarcely moved his arms, being in fact one of those men who despises the habit of gesticulation common to southern people. Everything in this man's manner revealed a calm and phlegmatic temperament. There was nothing indolent about him, but his appearance spoke of tranquillity. He was one of those who never seemed to expect anything from anybody, who liked to work when he thought proper, and whose philosophy nothing could astonish or trouble. I began to comprehend his character simply from the way in which he listened to the wild and impassioned verbiage of my worthy uncle. While the excellent professor spoke sentence after sentence, he stood with folded arms, utterly still, motionless to all of my uncle's gesticulations. When he wanted to say no, he moved his head from left to right. When he acquiesced, he nodded, so slightly that you could have scarcely seen the undulation of his head. This economy of motion was carried to the length of avarice. Judging from his appearance, I should have been a long time before I had suspected him to be what he was, a mighty hunter. Certainly his manner was not likely to frighten the game. How, then, did he contrive to get at his prey? My surprise was slightly modified when I knew that this tranquil and solemn personage was only a hunter of the Eiderduck, the down of which is, after all, the greatest source of the Icelander's wealth. In the early days of summer, the female of the Eider, a pretty sort of duck, builds its nest amid the rocks of the fjords, the name given to all narrow gulfs in Scandinavian countries, with which every part of the island is indented. No sooner has the eider duck made her nest than she lines the inside of it with the softest down from her breast. Then comes the hunter or trader, taking away the nest. The poor bereaved female begins her task over again, and this continues as long as any eider down is to be found. When she can find no more, the male bird sets to work to see what he can do. As, however, his down is not so soft, and therefore has no commercial value, the hunter does not take the trouble to rob him of his nest lining. The nest is accordingly finished, the eggs are laid, the little ones are born, and next year the harvest of eiderdown is again collected. Now as the eiderduck never selects steep rocks or aspects to build its nest, but rather sloping and low cliffs near to the sea, the Icelandic hunter can carry on his trade operations without much difficulty. He is like a farmer who has neither to plough, to sow, nor to harrow, only to collect his harvest. This grave, sententious, silent person, as phlegmatic as an Englishman on the French stage, was named Hans Bjelke. He had called upon us in consequence of the recommendation of Mr. Friedrichsen. He was, in fact, our future guide. It struck me that had I sought the world over, I could not have found a greater contradiction to my impulsive uncle. They, however, readily understood one another. Neither of them had any thought about money. 
One was ready to take all that was offered him, the other ready to offer anything that was asked. It may readily be conceived, then, that an understanding was soon to come between them. Now, the understanding was that he was to take us to the village of Stapi, situated on the southern slope of the peninsula of Sneffels, at the very foot of the volcano. Hans, the guide, told us the distance was about twenty-two miles, a journey which my uncle supposed would take about two days. But when my uncle came to understand that they were Danish miles, of eight thousand yards each, he was obliged to be more moderate in his ideas, and, considering the horrible roads we had to follow, to allow eight or ten days for the journey. Four horses were prepared for us, two to carry the baggage, and two to bear the important weight of myself and uncle. Hans declared that nothing ever would make him climb on the back of any animal. He knew every inch of that part of the coast, and promised to take us the very shortest way. His engagement with my uncle was by no means to cease with our arrival at Stoppy. He was further to remain in his service during the whole time required for the completion of his scientific investigations, at the fixed salary of three rix dollars a week, being exactly fourteen shillings and twopence minus one farthing English currency. One stipulation, however, was made by the guide. The money was to be paid to him every Saturday night, failing which his engagement was at an end. The day of our departure was fixed. My uncle wished to hand the Eiderdown hunter in advance, but he refused in one emphatic word. Efter. Which being translated from Icelandic into plain English means after. The treaty concluded, our worthy guide retired without another word. A splendid fellow, said my uncle. Only he little suspects the marvelous part he is about to play in the history of the world. You mean, then, I cried in amazement, that he should accompany us? To the interior of the earth, yes, replied my uncle. Why not? There were yet forty-eight hours to elapse before we made our final start. To my great regret, our whole time was taken up in making preparations for our journey. All our industry and ability were devoted to packing every object in the most advantageous manner, the instruments on one side, the arms on the other, the tools here and the provisions there. There were, in fact, four distinct groups. The instruments were, of course, of the best manufacture. 1. A centigrade thermometer of Eigel, counting up to 150 degrees, which to me did not appear half enough or too much. Too hot by half, if the degree of heat was to ascend so high, in which case we would certainly be cooked. Not enough if we wanted to ascertain the exact temperature of springs or metal in a state of fusion. 2. A manometer, which worked by compressed air, an instrument used to ascertain the upper atmospheric pressure on the level of the ocean. Perhaps a common barometer would not have done as well, the atmospheric pressure being likely to increase in proportion as we descended below the surface of the earth. 3. A first-class chronometer made by Boissonis of Geneva, set at the meridian of Hamburg, from which Germans calculate, as the English do from Greenwich, and the French from Paris. 4. Two compasses, one for horizontal guidance, the other to ascertain the dip. 5. A night glass. 6. Two Ruhmkorff coils, which, by means of a current of electricity, would ensure us a very excellent, easily carried, and certain means of obtaining light. 7. A voltic battery on the newest principle. Footnote. Thermometer. Thermos and metron. Measure. An instrument for measuring the temperature of the air. Manometer. Monos and metron. Measure. An instrument to show the density or rarity of gases. Chronometer. Chronos, time, and metros, measure. A time measurer, or superior watch.
Ruhmkorff's coil, an instrument for producing currents of induced electricity of great intensity. It consists of a coil of copper wire insulated by being covered with silk, surrounded by another coil of fine wire, also insulated, in which a momentary current is induced when a current is passed through the inner coil from a voltic battery. When the apparatus is in action, the gas becomes luminous and produces a white and continued light. The battery and wire are carried in a leather bag, which the traveler fastens by a strap to his shoulders. The lantern is in front and enables the benighted wanderer to see in the most profound obscurity. He may venture without fear of explosion into the midst of the most inflammable gases, and the lantern will burn beneath the deepest waters. H. D. Ruhmkorff, an able and learned chemist, discovered the induction coil. In 1864, he won the quinquennial French prize of 2,000 pounds for this ingenious application of electricity. A voltic battery, so-called from Volta, its designer, is an apparatus consisting of a series of metal plates arranged in pairs and subjected to the action of saline solutions for producing currents of electricity. End footnote. Our arms consisted of two rifles, with two revolving six-shooters. Why these arms were provided it was impossible for me to say. I had every reason to believe that we had neither wild beasts nor savage natives to fear. My uncle, on the other hand, was quite devoted to his arsenal and to his collection of instruments, and above all was very careful with his provision of fulminating or gun cotton, warranted to keep in any climate, and of which the expansive force was known to be greater than that of ordinary gunpowder. Our tools consisted of two pickaxes, two crowbars, a silken ladder, three iron-shod alpine poles, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges, some pointed pieces of iron, and a quantity of strong rope. You may conceive that the whole made a tolerable parcel, especially when I mentioned that the ladder itself was 300 feet long. Then there came the important question of provisions. The hamper was not very large, but tolerably satisfactory, for I knew that in concentrated essence of meat and biscuit there was enough to last six months. The only liquid provided by my uncle was shitum, of water not a drop. We had, however, an ample supply of gourds, and my uncle counted on finding water, and enough to fill them, as soon as we commenced our downward journey. My remarks as to the temperature, the quality, and even the possibility of none being found, remained wholly without effect. To make up the exact list of our traveling gear for the guidance of future travelers, add that we carried a medicine and surgical chest, with all apparatus necessary for wounds, fractures, and blows, lint, scissors, lancets, in fact a perfect collection of horrible-looking instruments, a number of vials containing ammonia, alcohol, ether, gallard water, aromatic vinegar, in fact, every possible and impossible drug. Finally, all the materials for working the Ruhmkorff coil. My uncle had also been careful to lay in a goodly supply of tobacco, several flasks of very fine gunpowder, boxes of tinder, besides a large belt crammed full of notes and gold. Good boots rendered watertight were to be found to the number of six in the toolbox. My boy, with such clothing, with such boots, and such general equipment, said my uncle, in a state of rapturous delight, we may hope to travel far. It took a whole day to put these matters in order. In the evening we dined with Baron Tramp, in company with the mayor of Reykjavik, and Dr. Hjaltalin, a great medical man of Iceland. Mr. Friedrichsen was not present, and I was afterwards sorry to hear that he and the governor did not agree on some matters connected with the administration of the island. Unfortunately, the consequence was that I did not understand a word that was said at dinner a kind of semi-official reception. One thing I can say, my uncle never left off speaking. The next day our labor came to an end. Our worthy host delighted my uncle, Professor Hardwig, by giving him a good map of Iceland, 
a most important and precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in a long conversation with Mr. Friedrichsen, whom I liked very much, the more that I never expected to see him or anyone else again. After this agreeable way of spending an hour or so, I tried to sleep, in vain. With the exception of a few dozes, my night was miserable. At five o'clock in the morning I was awakened from the only real half-hour's sleep of the night by the loud neighing of horses under my window. I hastily dressed myself and went down into the street. Hans was engaged in putting the finishing stroke to our baggage, which he did in a silent, quiet way that won my admiration, and yet he did it admirably well. My uncle wasted a great deal of breath in giving him directions, but worthy Hans took not the slightest notice of his words. At six o'clock all our preparations were completed, and Mr. Friedrichsen shook hands heartily with us. My uncle thanked him warmly, in Icelandic language, for his hospitality, speaking truly from the heart. As for myself, I put together a few of my best Latin phrases and paid him the highest compliments I could. This fraternal and friendly duty performed, we sallied forth and mounted our horses. As soon as we were quite ready, Mr. Friedrichsen advanced, and by way of farewell, called after me the words of Virgil, words which appeared to have been made for us, travelers starting for an uncertain destination. Et cacunque viam diderit fortuna sequamar. And whichsoever way thou goest, may fortune follow. End of chapter 8